Thanks for being here. I had so much fun talking with Ben Eubanks of Lighthouse Research. He embodies kindness, curiosity, creativity. I really love the fact that he has been an HR practitioner, knows the work, and then jumped off and started a research organization. And the way he approaches it is so empathetic. It's so empowering. And his journey from being a runner to a father to really exploring challenges from a data perspective, and not to mean that he is an analyst, but he thinks with such deep curiosity that it inspires for anyone who's in HR, whether they be a people analyst or HR business partner, to think in a way that can inspire confidence that, hey, this in fact is what's happening and this is the best way forward. Again, supported by data. So thanks for being here. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with me and Ben Eubanks of Lighthouse Research. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Ben Eubanks. Ben, how are you? I'm doing really well today, Al. How are you, sir? I'm doing really well as well. If I get a chance to talk with you. So, hey, if you would introduce yourself a little bit and uh, let's get into this discussion because I'm thrilled that you're sharing time with me today. Absolutely. So just the I always skip something in this, but I'll give you the, the short version, the short as I can. So um, I spend my days as a chief research officer for Lighthouse Research and Advisory. So I do two kinds of research, one on the technologies and tools that employers use to hire, serve, keep their people. Also research on trends, what's happening in the space, how employers are making decisions, what the workforce needs from their employers, all those kind of things. So I spend my all my time doing that. I'm a very, very full-fledged research nerd, right? It's what, what I do. Um, in addition to that, I've written a book on AI for HR. I'm almost done with my next book around what's happening with talent, the talent shortage and those kind of things. So I have so much fun with that. I run my own podcast called We're Only Human because we are only human after all. And we screw up a lot and we learn a lot of things from that. And so I spend my days doing those things. I'm most importantly, the dad of four kids. And when I'm not writing or reading or running, sorry, when I'm not writing or reading or speaking, I love to run. So this year I broke my record 41 miles in one day and uh i didn't love it you know right after that but looking back now it's something i was glad i did damn 41 miles in one day yeah you know we have bicycles we have cars horses <laughs> we have forms of locomotion what <laughs> yeah. well good for you that's quite an achievement and having run uh, one uh, half marathon once um once, <laughs> kudos to you. That's uh, that's quite an achievement. So, you know, well, let's go back. You know, you've been yeah. in this field for a number of years now. I'm not going to date you or anything like that, but I'm really curious as what inspired you to get into the field of HR, talent acquisition, and you know, research things that formerly we didn't have you know answers to. So I'll tell you that unlike most people. I wanted to be in HR when I was a kid. I just didn't know what it was called. So <laughs> we, we go, you, you told me to go back, right? So I'll go way back. There you go. Go. Uh, the funny version of it is I was the older middle of four boys. So I had none of the position authority of being the oldest. I couldn't tell everyone what to do. It was a lot of, hey, if you'll do this, they'll do that. Can we broker a deal here? Can we get people to agree on this thing that no one really wants to do? When you think about it, that's what HR leaders do most of their day anyway. So I learned those skills very early on. The, the serious part of that, though, is when I started working in jobs as a high schooler and as a college student, 
I was working for these companies that were small, no, no HR people. And they always had trouble hiring people in a timely manner. They had trouble making sure they had the right benefits and resources to be successful training, right? All those kind of things. And I, I was nerdy back then. I thought if I could figure out that thing, then I'll have a job because everybody seems to struggle with that. And when I got into college, someone said, Hey, write a paper on this thing called human resources management. Like, oh, that sounds horribly boring. And once I started digging into it, I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, this is what I've always wanted to do. So I changed my major from management to HR that day and finished my degree in HR, got into the field and loved it. It was such a joy to be able to serve people in that way. I was I get so excited about it. And the only reason I decided to step out of doing HR day to day back in 2014 is because I wanted a chance to impact HR leaders at hundreds or thousands of organizations and all the people that served, supported them at those companies. So I was so excited to have that potentially larger impact. And that's why I stepped out then. Um, the, funny enough, when I started in HR all those years ago, after I graduated, I started writing a blog on the side because when I had I'm a preparer. I'm a researcher. I wanted to know, how do you be great at this? So I started looking and Googling. And at the time, the only things I could find were very much focused on, here's how you build your strategic plan and all these other kind of things, which are great things for you and I to discuss now. But as someone starting out, I wasn't putting my hands on any of that stuff. I didn't have a chance to get close to those kinds of tasks. So I started writing about the things I was learning day to day. And those experiences helped me to start shaping how I felt about what we're, what we're put here to do, why HR is the best field there is on the planet, like all those kind of things. So it's been fun to see those kind of parallel tracks and eventually they merged and I've been doing that ever since. Wow. Man, you're firing me up. <laughs> it's because I, you know, just sidebar, yeah, HR, I'm an accidental tourist. You know, I did not have a <laughs> enlightened moment where, okay, you know, I, I'm now in this field, but I love what you shared there. I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know it was called HR, but it's something now we're both in this field and that you were drawn to a degree. So obviously your university had a degree in HR or was it part of the business school? Was it part of the psychology department? What did that degree, what was it comprised of? So the degree was human resources management, actually, at the business school there. And so what, what, what gets me is as I'm going through, again, probably all of us felt this. If you've gone, if you went to college for something that you were excited about, the closer you got to those classes that actually were aligned with your major and the things you were curious about, the more excited you got about those classes. At the same time, before I went to the school I went to, I had friends, I had, you know, older cousins, things that said, oh, I went through there. Make sure you avoid this professor avoid this person because their classes are awful. And I go and I look at the cell, the, you know, the class list, HR 101, that professor, HR, you know, 201, that professor. I'm like, well, looks like I'm going to get, you know, steeped in this person that everyone else hates. And what's fun for me is once I got in there, I figured out what made them tick. I found out the things that, that, that excited them about a student, what made them see that a student was really pouring into the class and it was how I was naturally going to be working in that class anyway. And so it was a really fun fit because I got to go back and say, I know you said stay away. I couldn't. And looking back now, I certainly wouldn't have either because those, all of us have had one of those professors or a teacher in school that was really hard. You're goodness gracious. That was difficult, but look how much I learned. And that's how I felt at the end of every one of those classes. But, you know, that's one of the things that I took away when we first connected is that you I do not know if you would call yourself a natural learner. Uh, maybe you learned how to learn, uh, but you're 
insatiably curious and you enlist ideas and you get people to speak. And you've done it with me when you facilitated uh, an event recently. So going back, if you don't mind me taking you back to, you you can stay in university, you can go back to high school, you mentioned your family. How did you learn these facilitation and listening and I'll put a name on a growth mindset? You know, where do you think that came from? That's a really great question. So I've always been a reader. I've always been drawn to ideas and things that's, that made me think differently. And when I think about the, the people I grew up with or anything else, I have a different perspective on the world in some ways than, than any of them do. And I don't know if that's because of my natural inclination. Obviously, the the nurture piece was all pretty much the same for all of us. And yet I end up very different in some of those ways. Um, one of the things I'll tell you is when I was going through and writing the first book, um, I want to bring this back together, but hang on, hang on for the ride for a second. OK, so I was writing the first book about AI applications to support HR from the very basic payroll workforce management to town acquisition to learning to everything that you can imagine. I got done writing about all these applications and doing all the research for the book. And I told the publisher, I can't I cannot support publishing this as is. It's missing something. I don't want someone to read this and be scared, concerned, worried about their own future. So I went back and looked at any sort of research I could find on what happens when automation passes by, what happens to the jobs that are left behind. Mm-hmm. What we found every time is that there were certain human skills that sit out. And those human skills, as I started diving into them and learning more about them, I'm like, wait a minute, these things are actually a big part of how my career path has shaped itself. Your mm-hmm. creativity, right? your ability to think around a problem, curiosity, as you said a minute ago, I love turning over the rocks, see what's underneath. That's one of my favorite sayings, and it's because that's how I spend my days. But those kinds of things set us apart from any of the algorithms and tools and everything. But they also set us apart from some people who are just like, I just want to get in the job and focus and, and do this thing. I just want to J-O-B, and then I want to live my life elsewhere. And I have always been of the opinion that if I am doing a job that I don't enjoy, then I'm not living my life. I'm, I'm missing a chance because I've spent too much time doing this. Life is too short to do something that you hate. And so that's one reason that I really have, again, over time, unintentionally ended up sculpting this work that I do around the things that I love, because I feel like I do it better than than most people do. And I enjoy it better than anyone else probably would as well. <laughs> well, I, you're definitely a creator. And uh, just to emphasize this point, I'll get your reaction on it with my kids. Uh, they're now 21 and 19 as we record this. Uh, I, at bedtime, uh, asked them, you know, what kind of person are you? And, and there was an answer. It was kind, curious, creative. And it started with the three C's. Now, granted, kindness is with a K, so hard C. Compassionate. How about that? Compassionate was one that was added, um, celebrating others, courage. And so it went on and on. And so I hear you talking and I hear a lot of that. You're kind, you're curious, you're creative, you celebrate others, you know, certainly. And so I want to call that out kind of as a, uh, I don't know if you call it a, a persona. And I want to take you again back. You mentioned that you grew up differently. If you don't mind sharing where you grew up and what are some of the distinctions that you have relative, if you don't mind sharing to your siblings or the people in your community? Sure. So I grew up, I'm right now I'm based in Huntsville, Alabama, and I grew up not far from here. So 
grew up on 45 acres and the nearest neighbor wasn't, was not with an earshot. Right. So they're, they're, we were wow. kind of out on our own. Uh, thank goodness I had enough brothers around to keep us busy and keep everybody occupied. Sometimes that led to burning things or blowing things up, but that's what boys do. So just a fair <laughs> warning. There. Bother anybody 45. <laughs> hey, you know what? Uh, the time my brother burnt down 17 acres next to us, that might have gotten someone's attention. But beyond that, yeah, most of the time it was it was under the radar. So the question was how how did that lead to some of the differences? Correct? Okay. Yes. So I'll give you an example. Just before you and I started recording this session together, I had a conversation with the pastor of our church and a ministry organization that does financial wellness training for pastors. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, would you be my champion? Because he knows that I have a, a fondness for financial literacy, for teaching people about how to handle the basics of money, how to do those things. And out of the, the brothers I have, no one else has that that interest the same way I do. Again, mm-hmm. super nerd. It's, it's what I do. <laughs> um, so much so that I'm, I'm doing this thing on the side. But the reason he asked me to be his champion to help support this thing as we're trying to make sure that their family is financially fit at, from a leadership perspective to lead this nonprofit, which is what it is. The, he knew that I would love to do that because I go to uh, Guatemala occasionally on mission trips. And the thing that I do, I learned very early on, I am not a builder. These hands break things more than they build things. Okay. So I'm, I'm drawn to the kids. I'll play with the kids, but I also find things to do that are aligned with what I love. So mm-hmm. for example, I'm going in a month or two to Guatemala, going to spend a couple of days there. And for this young adult ministry, that's just the students graduating out, recent graduates from their high school, trying to figure out what they're going to do. Like the cycle of poverty for many of them, they've grown up having nothing and they're going to continue having nothing unless they learn something different. And so mm-hmm. one day I spend with them on financial literacy. Here's, here's the basics of saving, which for us sounds so simple, right? Mm-hmm. But here's how you save money. Here's why you save money. I know today it feels better to spend that, but two years from now, whatever the future point is, you'll be glad you did. So I teach them on those things. And then the next day I do career, career coaching. So I have my friend who's a missionary there. He will mock interview them and grill them and have some fun with it. And then I get to come back behind and coach and say, hey, here's how you should respond to that question. Next time someone asks you, make sure you phrase it this way so you can draw on that experience, that strength that you already have. So those kind of things I do, and even though that's not my daily work, I don't get paid to do any of those things. I do it because it's how I feel my skills are best shaped to suit the world and serve the world. Wow. I mean, you're obviously a giver and one of those seasons is caring and you you have that. And you know, thank you for sharing, because that brings up kind of for me, if we get into, you know, the professional world of HR, you know, we are servants, uh, we are facilitators, and we have this balance, correct me if I'm wrong from your perspective, of caring for the people doing the work and also helping the organization get where it you know wants to go. So from your role as a, and I'll put a name on it and you, if you have a different name, please uh, you know, um, introduce it. You know, servant leadership, you know, how are you, how do you advocate HR leaders and others take on that role and that mindset of, you know, balancing organizational needs and individual needs and to help people get where they want to go as well. So I'll tell you that for most HR leaders, the people side of it is, is easy. Many people get into the space because they say, Oh, I like people, right? That's the most common reason you hear when someone steps into HR or they fall into it. Well, I like people. So I, maybe I like that job. 
And so usually that part is pretty natural. It's easy. It's the part that comes when you're like, okay, now we've got to actually do something in service of the objectives of the business. Because mm-hmm. guess what? If we're just being friends and hugging and high-fiving <laughs> and all the other stuff that never actually gets around to serving yeah. a customer, building a product, delivering a, you know, delivering some sort of service, then guess what? The business is going to go out of business and there's no more HR, there's no more employees. So we've got to make sure that we're doing these things in service of whatever that bigger goal is. And so I'll, Throughout my career, and you could probably attest to this, the best HR leaders are ones who really know the business well. They know it so well that someone comes to them and says, hey, we got a problem. It's not an HR problem, but it's a problem. We want your input on it because you seem to have a handle on what's going on around here. Right? Mm-hmm. That's a really powerful place to be. And it comes from not just focusing on one side of that or the other, but really looking for ways to solve any of the problems the business has. We've got a customer service issue. Okay, let's look at the people side. What levers can we pull to make sure we're solving for those things? Are we training people appropriately on the right behaviors? Are we hiring people that are predisposed to lean in on customer service? Are we, all these kind of things. Can I tell you a funny story really quickly that I love yeah, to absolutely. share? Absolutely. It ties these things together because I, I'll tell a story on myself, okay, because it illustrates the importance of not just looking at the data, even if it might be fun for you, again, looking at the numbers, all those things. And I go, that's that's the direction you lean to, right? You're a, you're a data guy. So several years ago, we were driving to the hospital because my wife was about to give birth. I was terrified, okay? <laughs> Freaking out, sweating bullets, driving 400 miles an hour or whatever, just trying to get there as quickly as I could. So we get there and they strap this thing to our stomach when they get her all set up called a tocometer. And it measures the strength of contractions during, during the process of giving birth. And I'm fascinated because they've got it hooked up to this machine and I can see the screen. And it's got a little readout on it. So I'm sitting over there watching the readout, just fascinated by this. And behind me, I hear my wife say, Ooh, that was a rough one. I'm like, well, on the screen, it didn't look that big. You know, it was kind of short. You know, it wasn't as big as the other one was. <laughs> Thank goodness she was not in any shape to get up and kill me, but she probably should have, you know, on the spot. And I tell that story to remind me and to remind everybody else out there that it's really easy to just get stuck looking at the data, looking at the numbers, looking at, you know, the big picture stuff. But behind every single data point, there's a person. There's a family, there's a life, there's hopes and dreams. Just like the story that you're drawing out of me in this conversation, behind mm-hmm. every single data point that we look at as HR leaders, all those things exist, exist for every single one. And so it's my reminder that we can't just do one or just do the other. The best HR leaders are definitely data oriented, right? We're focused on what the business needs and how to solve for those. But we're also conscious of the people and what they need from us because you when you bring those things together, it creates some some really powerful outcomes that you can't do just one or just the other. Oh, gosh, I absolutely love that story. Thank you. That's going to be sticky for sure. I mean, I'm not going to soon forget that. So you know, I want to go back because you mentioned in passing that you got an HR management degree that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is part of the business school. And yes. so you're, it's obvious, not only in the discussion today that we're having, but in your work that, you know, again, you're balancing human needs with, with business needs you know, in a not only elegant way, but a very practical, tangible way that people can take action on. You know, that's my takeaway in working with you. Where did you go once you graduated? You know, what you mentioned, you were an HR professional first, and then you did research. So what, what did that journey look like just after school? So I started out, I went to work for a nonprofit. I got the, you know, 
the the lowest roll rung on the on the ladder, right? That position there, um, and a hundred percent of my job, a hundred percent of it was processing new hire paperwork and processing termination paperwork. And our turnover was over fifty percent a year. So sometimes it was the same person on the same day. It was a ridiculous job. And so that was my first actual early look at the data. Is I got after about. Um, a day of that. After about a year of that, I got sick of just this treadmill nonstop. And so I went through and looked at all of our, all of our old files and stuff. We had just put in our first HRIS. So I was so excited to have an actual system to do this stuff, not just paperwork and files. And I went through all that stuff and put in, started cataloging reasons for termination, how long someone had been there, like some, some basic stuff from the last five, six years of files that we had. So I went through and did that and then did a turnover analysis on how long were people there on average for they left, right? What were the mm-hmm. reasons they left? Where were they working? Who's ma- who was their manager? All those kind of details because I wanted to create something actionable. Mm-hmm. The day I started, that leader said, I just want to let you know that our turnover is about 50% a year. A, a year after I was there, it was just an accepted number and it felt so big that no one knew what to do with it. It's There's no action to take. So once I started doing that, I realized, hey, wait a minute. There's a big chunk of this that's happening in that first 30 days on the job. What can we do to educate people before they take this job so that we don't have those you know, false positives where someone comes in, they, they bail on us? Or I found out that we had some managers where the turnover was like 70, 80 percent. We had another manager where it was 10 percent. I thought it was a, I thought there was an error. I had to go back through and recalculate every one of his employees and it was 10 percent. Like, what is he doing that no one else is? Because we've got to figure that out because that that's going to change everything. And so I started really diving into those kind of things. Just again. Curious, naturally. No one asked me to. My boss actually was a little bit unhappy that I took some time to do that instead of processing paperwork and running on the treadmill for her. Um, But I wanted to understand, is there a way to solve for this? Because there's other stuff I could be doing. There's other ways I could be serving, helping, you know, making an impact than just processing the stuff over and over again. So anyway, sorry, that was a long story. That was that was the first job that I got. Long story. I, I had no idea you're a people analytics professional. That's what that's the essence of it. You know, good for you. That's uh and the thing that I want to highlight too. I mean, that's such an inspiring story for anyone who's getting into the field of HR, because that, in my view, needs to be the norm moving forward. You know, and it also invites the question. And you touched on it, I think. Did you learn that way of processing while you were in school? Or did you just get into the role and say, hey, I'm going to create a, a solution here? Do, you know, was there a connection there or was it just your you know, initiative? That's a great question. And I've never stopped to, to ask myself that. So I don't know exactly. I do know that when I was in school, right, economics, statistics, most people hate those classes. I really love them, right? The science of making choices and how people make choices and why they do. And can we measure that? And if they make this choice, what's the cost of not making the other choice? Like I love those kinds of conversations in school. And I love the academic side, but the practical side too. I love the understanding of that. And I, I'm not a fan. And I bet I would hope no one here listening is eat as, as well. I'm not a fan of data for its own sake. I'm a fan of it for the answers that it gives us, the past that illuminates, the the action we're taking that's harmful. Let's stop doing that. I love it for that purpose. And so I really enjoyed those kind of things to, to tell you how, how much fun I had with this. We had to pick a stats project when we were graduating out of that class. We had to pick anything we wanted to do and then do a, some analysis on the on the data. And it was 
like as long as you don't just totally screw up the formulas, it's pretty wide open. And so I went through and looked at all these race times for a 50 kilometer race here in town and did it use it to predict based on someone's age, whether they've done the race before, um, the temperature, a couple of their factors, what their finishing time would be within a certain window. And so I just had, had fun doing that. I might have been completely wrong, but I had fun exploring the ideas of can I use data to tell a story, to illuminate a path, to, and I can actually check and see if it's right or wrong and then hone it over time. So I'd done those kind of things in school and enjoyed that. So when I had a chance to do it in real life, for me, it felt even more exciting because it wasn't just this fun little side thing. This, this could actually help us to, this could help us to make work better for all the people who didn't leave because they're shouldering the burden for the people who are turning over and all that slack that appears when someone else, you know, quits without warning, like all those people who were day in, day out doing the best they could in a really hard job that didn't pay very well like for all those people. I wanted to make it better for them. Not just the new ones we were hiring in, not the people who were leaving. They were, they were gone, but for everybody else, I wanted to help, help those people. And that's, that's what got me excited about that kind of analysis. Yeah. I'm, I'm smiling so much. I mean, if you're listening, you can't see it, but I'm just like, it's like, you're flirting with me. I like, I'm falling in love with you, right? <laughs> because this is, I mean, it's so inspirational just to, because this is this not only being curious for curious sake. Um, one of my mentors and, and um, he's in fact, I'll call him a coach as well. We talk about intention and appropriate response. So, you know, what's Mm -hmm. our intention to improve the worker experience? You know, what's the appropriate response? Oftentimes it's studying, you know, the dynamics and that requires data that requires creative analyses and, you know, what you're talking about. So, you know, I love these stories and I, it just, it gets me excited because again, I, I'm biased. I'll own that. When we talk about the core competencies of HR professionals here in 2022 and beyond, it's my hope, and I'm seeing it more and more, that what you're referring to is not only a nice to have, it's a necessity. It's a core competency that needs to be nurtured, hopefully in an educational experience like you talked about. But certainly, mm-hmm. if you when you come on board, that there is some education tools resources that enable that type of curiosity and you know exploration so you know with that you know do you see that happening in the field of hr a, a heightened level of curiosity and creativity and exploring and use of data there are people who are naturally drawn to it <laughs> Mm-hmm. We are for sure, right? Yeah, if you're right. listening into this, probably are are a little bit too, right? If you're listening to this or taking the time to do that, they're probably already a little predisposed to be curious about these things. There are plenty of people though as well that are heads down, they're turning away, they're doing good work, but that feel like they don't have the moment to, you know, take a big breath and slow down and look around and see what's happening. Those people that feel like that, they're they're always going to have a hard time doing these kind of things. And again, I against the the recommendation or against the judgment of, of people who seemingly knew better, I took that breath when I felt like it was appropriate to, to check these things out. So if someone's listening in, you're thinking, okay, this this is interesting, but I, I couldn't do that or I don't my mind doesn't work that way. No one expects you to flip a switch and suddenly be that way. But the thing that I'll encourage you to do is to just ask more questions. When something happens, ask why, ask how, ask what it means. What is this long-term? What does this mean? 
This is a short-term thing. This is a long-term thing. Um, who, how's this going to change? What's next? Uh, there's a tremendous leader named David Marquette. He was a naval commander. And he took over this submarine, uh, his last posting as a commander before he retired out. He was thinking, I'm going to get this, you know, the, the cherry pick of the fleet. Someone's going to reward me for a, my amazing years of service. They're going to give me a kind of an easy coast on the way out. They put him in charge of the worst performing ship in the entire naval fleet and said, here you go. Enjoy this you know, position. So when he came in, the first thing he noticed is the former leader judged their success on how little people can do when they weren't around. Well, if Al can't do any work when I'm not here, what must mean that I'm indisposable. You're mm-hmm. indispensable, right? I'm an incredible leader. So Al's helpless when I'm not here because I can't answer his questions. I can't tell him what to do. And he shifted that immediately and said, no, 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 no. That is, that is failure on my part. If you can't operate without me being here, I can't be everywhere at once. You know, I expect mm-hmm. you to be able to do 90% of your job. That 10% that you're not sure of, or there's a high risk or something else, Come to me. I will help you sort it out. I'm here to back you up. But for the other 90%, you know better than I do how to fix that thing, how to run that machine, how to read that radar, whatever else. You know how to do those things. And a big part of that transition for him was when people, that's a hard behavior to break. When someone becomes dependent on you, it's hard to get them to to change that. It's painful. And so the way he did that without saying, "Uh, no, just stiff arming them was tell me about how that works. Tell me more about how do you how do you understand this, right? How did you figure this out the first time? Have you ever seen this before? He just asked a lot of questions, genuine curiosity. And when someone, even when they screwed up, it was, did you know that was going to happen? You know, it was just questions. It was never in your face. And he, within 24 months, within 12 months, sorry, that ship became the best performing ship in the entire fleet. And he credits it entirely to that questioning, curious sort of leadership style. And so as you and I have been kicking this around in the conversation, Al, that that focus on being a more curious person applies in a lot of situations, including from a leadership perspective, but also just from this, this data perspective. There's a lot of applications for that. And generally, I find it being a helpful skill to build in life. Yeah, I thank you for sharing that story. And I couldn't agree more. Um, I, when I talk to leaders or I'm coaching I and I talk about compassionate curiosity. Um, There's a lot of talk about critical thinking, but there's a defensive response to critical, just the word, right? And, uh, you know, feedback similarly, and without getting too long-winded on this topic, what I do advocate is that people explore what I call OQIs, observations, questions, and ideas, because ultimately people want to be seen, heard, and empowered. Rarely do they want to be ignored. They don't want to be invisible, and they don't want to be oftentimes told what to do, to your point. So what I hear in your story is that, is that we have this compassionate curiosity and observing what's happening. We stay, you know, ask questions, not to put people on the defensive, but to really learn and offer these ideas, you know, so people can choose whether or not to take them on. And so that's what, you know, I, I, I'm, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm like, that's what I see you doing. Like you manifest that behavior, you know, habitually. So I want to applaud you for that. Um, you can comment on that, but I'd love to go back to the nonprofit because where did you go from there? Because that you know, was a great story. And you so you right off the bat, you're not only an HR professional, but you're a people analyst or you know, a, a professional with Wanna that. Be. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, where did you go from there? Right. so that story did not have a happy ending. 
my leader said, Hey, you should not have done that. You have stuff to do, put that away, get back to work. So any one of us who's ever had that moment where your soul was, you know, your light was snuffed out or whatever, that was it. And I've started making plans to leave and left that company every two years, had a chance to go. I had a friend who I'd met in a local mentoring group, this HR group, um, she said, Hey, I just, I'm, I'm running HR over here at this company. I need someone, I can have a right hand to help me out. There's just, we're growing quickly. I need some help. And I looked at the job description. And I said, that's, that's beyond me. I'm not ready for that. That's, that's a couple years away. She said, no, no, apply now. So I applied, set up the interview. So I'm, I'm pumped. I'm going to come in and interview with her and the CEO and the vice president. So I'm again, a little bit nervous about this whole experience. I'm only a couple years out of college and this is going to be a apparently a real HR job potentially if I can sell this. And the night before the interview, I said, you know what? I probably need to look up these other people that I'm going to be interviewing with so I know something about them. So I started looking it up. The founder and CEO of this company was a literal war hero. If you've ever seen Black Hawk Down, the, the pilot who shot down in Somalia and dr- drug from the aircraft and taken prisoner, that was this man that I was about to meet with. He was a president. So wow. the whole time I'm sitting there like, I was already nervous this could be. I'm thinking... Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it freaked me out to, to no end. Apparently they liked what they saw. I got the job and worked there for several years. She, that was the best leader I ever worked for my, my boss. She developed me. She grew me. She stretched me when I was not comfortable that she stretched me anyway. And ultimately a couple years in, she said, Hey, I'm going to go home and be with the kids. I said, well, who are you going to hire to replace you? And she said, it's you, sucker. You're stepping up. (laughs) You're ready for it. So she, wow, like, you know, early 20s, she put me in charge of running HR for this multi-million dollar company. And it was an incredible experience. I, again, working alongside her hand in hand for a couple of years. So I knew, and it shaped a lot of my philosophy as well. Again, the previous company taught me a lot of the don't do this. Don't do that. I, I learned what what did not work from an HR perspective, treating people like numbers, treating them like they're disposable, right? running that treadmill. We were a very different company. We had a very different kind of culture and we prioritized different things. And because mm-hmm. of that, that helped me to influence how I saw the world through that kind of HR worldview of things we mm-hmm. talked about earlier. Yeah. One of my greatest accomplishments at that company was when I went to my the, you know, the, the two co-founders, and my boss, when she was still there, I said, hey, would you be okay if I try to put down in words what it's like to work here? I want to talk about our culture in a very practical kind of way. And I want to make it clear to people. And they're like, yeah, sure, go for it. So I just wrote out what was on my heart, what I had seen, what I had lived for the last couple of years and shared it back with them. And my boss said, I will show this to the CEO on the condition that you, if he likes it, we're going to put this on the career side. So everyone who comes through here is going to have to read this as part of the application process. Like, oh gosh, I just, this is just like a fun exercise for me. But it, it was, again, that's just how different the culture was. It talked about what it was like to be there. And if you really were wanting to be that kind of person, you wanted to work that hard, you wanted to have that kind of impact and mission, then this is the place for you. So that it was a tremendous experience. And I love my time there. I learned so much about what it what great HR looks like and how to do it well. Well, let me ask a, a few questions here. Um, sure. Number one, why do you believe she selected you? What were some of the attributes that you think you possess? Because you're what, four or five years out of school at this point, or is it longer than that? Three. Three, three years Three out years. of school. 
So that's not normal. Yes. So, so, you know, kudos to you for making that happen. So, you know, why do you think that uh, happened? And two, when you wrote this, um, it's, it sounds like it came from the heart that it wasn't like a this vision for putting it on the, the website. What was it about that narrative that you believe inspired the leader to actually put it on the website so others can see it? So the first answer is all the good people were taken. So I was all that's left, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how we went. <laughs> Every job that I've ever gotten hasn't been because of a relationship, but it's been because of a relationship. Mm-hmm. So again, I told you I built a relationship with her in a completely different context, sort of as a peer in this, in this networking group, in this mentoring group. And so she got to see me over the course of a year as I'm sharing my ideas, as I'm putting, as I'm, you know, taking a stance on what I think HR should be about. She got to see those things from the side, you know, just watching me without, without having that attached to the job, without me feeling like I was being judged by anything. It was just someone else. And so she knew my honest feelings on a lot of the things and how much we aligned on what this should look like when it's done well, this is what it should look like. Because at the time I was working for that company where I did not believe in the kind of things that they they were espousing and, and prioritizing. So I think that's part of the reason she ended up offering that to me. She obviously didn't have the, she had significant weight in that decision, but the leadership as well wanted to hear about how, how I understood how HR fit into the business. Honestly, that's a lot of their questions were about those things. They didn't care about the technical stuff. That was her her purview. They want to know, do you understand when you do this thing, how it's going to affect this other thing down the line? So I put them at ease, apparently, somehow in that interview. I don't remember anything that I said, just sweating bullets the whole time. Uh, so your second question was... I'm forgetting now what that one was. This, this, uh, I, I want to call it a manifesto, but it's not a manifesto. But you wrote how you felt about yes, working yes. there. Was that after you were promoted to lead HR? Not and yet. No, I had not been promoted yet. So I had okay. been through. I'd been through a full year there and had seen how different things were, and a big part of how we talk to our people was through the lens of the values we have as an organization, and so I, I wanted to write about that a little bit because. The difficulty for me is when I talk to someone in a recruiting conversation, hey, we're different. Yeah, that's what they all said too. You know, I'm at a job now and it stinks and they told me they were different and apparently they weren't. And so I wanted to write something that helped them to see what that was like because each individual conversation takes way too long. So mm-hmm. I just want to share those things out. And a part of that too was driven by the fact that we, for the first time, Raptor right came on, we went from... 30 employees to 70 employees, right? So we more than doubled in size because we'd want a big contract. And the difficulty was those people that we quote unquote hired, we would never have hired many of them if we had been given the option, but they were already on site. And so the government just said, hey, you just keep those people there. And we turned turned out none of those people or very few of them aligned with the kind of beliefs we had as an organization or, or believed in the values that we had. And there was some, some mismatch there. Part of that I've learned later was just they were completely jaded because they'd worked for a company that treated them like trash. Hmm. So they were waiting for us to come in and do the exact same thing. Let's squeeze them dry and throw them out and find someone else to replace them. And so a big part of my early steps in that job were to go there to help foster some relationships, to build some inroads with them and to create some some opportunities for us to 
make sure that they knew we cared about them. So that's part of the early work that I did. And again, for most HR people, that's it's, I'm, I'm doing payroll or I'm processing benefits or I'm doing whatever else. Building relationships was a big part of that, of the job for me early on, especially. And so much so that when I'm going up there the first time, my boss said, hey, here's a printout of the, of all, you know, 30 employees up there. When you get there, you need to know every one of them by their picture. You need to be able to identify them and call them by name when you get there. I expect that of you. It's like, oh my gosh. So this is, so there are some high expectations there, but we were a very relational company. So, you know, the, the core values piece, um, the, that the, uh, the, the, the company called Pinnacle, right? And it was called the Pinnacle Way, this manifesto, this guide to our culture, whatever you want to call it, this piece that I wrote revolved around those values because I started to see how our leadership, the, the people who founded the company did so because their values didn't align with the previous company they worked at. And they said, this stinks. Let's go start something ourselves and let's just build it on these things we know work. Hmm. And so they started the company that way. And that funneled through every conversation, every decision, every hire, every performance conversation, everything came back to those things because it gave us a common language to be able to talk about you're doing this, you're not doing that. And we all know that this is the expectation. And so again, sorry, that's kind of wandered that answer a little bit, but it, it all came back to those values that breathe life into the company in a way I had never seen firsthand before. Well, I mean, you are obviously inspired and I just want to call out the power of language. And it sounds like, forgive the French, but like no shit statement. But it's one thing to have values up on a wall or on a website somewhere. It's another thing to put stories around them ongoing. Mm -hmm. And when it's heartfelt based on experience, it just has a different level of, of power and accountability. So, you know, I just certainly celebrate you doing that. And I would imagine that you took that experience and took it to your next you know, adventure and not to take you away too quickly from it, but you know, you have quite a set of experiences between school and lighthouse. So, you know, where did you go from there? Well, that's so interestingly enough, I started doing a little bit of consulting on the side for as an independent, you know, consultant for a company here locally, doing a little bit of HR stuff here and there, helping companies with recruiting and things like that, because I, I loved it and I had fun with it. At the same time, as I had started working for a research company, so a friend of mine came to me and said, hey, I know you're, you're doing this thing that you love. And I did. I that was the best company I ever worked for, best leaders, best cult. Like everything was perfect. No one would ever want to leave there. And yet it was the weirdest day ever when I went to my boss and said, I know that I, that you know that I love it here, but I want to try something else. And he just he was like, are you serious? I said, I need you to understand this because you left a company to start your own thing. And I'm going to go try something because I may do that myself. It's like, okay, I, I don't like it, but I can you know accept that. So I went to work for another research company in the space that allowed me to learn a little more of the rigor and discipline around doing research. So I worked with some incredible people that um, helped me to see how research can help people on a broader scale. I'd done a little bit myself during this early, there's earlier jobs, some of that writing I was doing on the side, I did my own little informal kind of surveys and things to understand why people hire certain people in HR and stuff. And it was just a fun way for me to have something to talk about. Honestly, I was curious about it. Once I had a chance to do this, I went through a company for two years and learned a little about the research side of things and how that worked. And 
the same time, there were some, there were some structures and things that I didn't enjoy very much. So mm-hmm. once I learned enough about that, I felt like I had squeezed that one to the fullest. I stepped out and that was Lighthouse 2016 and has been what I've been doing ever since. Well, let's talk about Lighthouse then, because you know, what is your focus? I know that you've focused on talent acquisition. Uh, you have a great narrative around workforce planning and you know, humanizing the recruiting process. And can, so share where your energy is now with Lighthouse. Actually, before you go there, what was your first set of projects? You know, And if you can connect to that to where you are now. So... One of my friends who worked with me at that that research company left before I did for the same reasons that I did. Went, went over. He actually started Lighthouse, sat there for a little while. I was like, oh, I don't enjoy this very much. And so he was going to go back and work for somebody else. I said, well, I am, I'm, I'm leaving. Can I, you know, he said, here's the keys. Have fun with it. So he had already <laughs> done some research on measures of talent acquisition success, talent acquisition success, um, all these different kinds of metrics and things. That, some of them that I never even considered because that's the world he lived in hundred percent was in TA. And so I started looking over some of those things and wrote a little bit out of that just to get my, my feet wet, get the wheels turning a little bit and started doing little projects here and there. And over time have shifted that from doing little ones and twosies to bigger custom research projects. Um, some of that's, some of that's research that we're doing because I'm curious about it. So every year we're digging into learning every day, every year we're digging into talent acquisition and around those things, we do other things right now. We're putting together, I have just opened a survey this morning on mental health at work, what's happening there, how the workforce feels about that, what they need. Uh, we're doing studies on, on benefits and things like that. Workplace flexibility. There's a massive study we're about to do some reporting on and frontline workers and what they need. So mm-hmm. I've been, I, I love getting to touch all these different things. It's one of the things someone told me very early when I got to the research side was, yeah, you've got to specialize. You've got to pick the thing you're going to do. So they tried to make me say, well, you're, I'm just in talent management or I'm just in recruiting or I'm just in payroll and benefits. And so the problem with that is when I worked in HR, I, my hands were in all these things. So I can't segment that off because I know that part of recruiting has to deal with compensation we offer and the mm-hmm. learning that we offer and what sort of performance management and manager leadership relationships they have, like all those things tie into recruiting. So I can't just silo that off like nothing else matters. So I've had a chance to touch all these kinds of things. And it's been such a blast for me to be able to do that and see how, how organizations are making decisions, what their priorities are. And again, what, what shifts, how, how the workforce, how they're thinking, what their priorities are, how they're making decisions day to day. There are, I, I get excited about the the chance to impact their leaders and who they're who are serving them every day by helping them to know what to do next. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I've enjoyed uh, with you and listening to you and learning from you right off the bat is your ability to think systematically. Uh, because to your point, yeah, you're right. You know, one talent acquisition affects you know onboarding, which affects you know, retention, which affects, you know, whole productivity and, and team effectiveness and all those, all those things. So looking at it from an employee experience or employee lifecycle perspective, I think is a- absolutely critical. So I certainly celebrate you uh, for that. As you look at who you're serving, and I presume it's HR leaders, it's HR professionals throughout, you know, organizations, what are some of your hopes for the near future? Like, is it, a new set of skills? Is it um, that they get 
more into a certain process. You know, I don't want to answer this for you, but I see some, you know, hopes and, you know, initiatives. Some are, I'm kind of curious, is that really going to be as productive as they hope? And others like, okay, I'm really excited that they're actually having the discussion around workforce planning, for example. So what do you hope based on the research that you've seen and, and authored that will happen with HR and HR leadership in the months and years to come? One of the things that's been top of mind for me lately, and some of the new research really underpins this well, is the fact that all of my friends, all of our peers, everyone listening to us that wears an HR or a people title, every one of those people feels responsible for when someone leaves the business, they feel responsible on that for, for that at some level, even though. 90, not 9%, a vast majority of that person's satisfaction has to do with their manager, how they treat them or don't treat them well. We still feel responsible for it. We still feel responsible when, you know, something goes wrong, when we can't hire people fast enough, when this, you know, DEI initiative doesn't go as planned, when we can't get this pay equity thing figured. When, when any of those things pop up, we feel responsible for it. And in many cases, Success in that comes from having a really good aligned relationship with our managers so they can take action, so they can step in, so they know the next right decision to make, all those kind of things. And so that's the part I'm really focused on right now is how do we form better relationships with those leaders in the business? Because I've yet to meet a manager that says, I hope I mess over every one of my people and they all end up quitting. <laughs> no one says that. And yet... It happens that way unintentionally because they're like, well, I don't know what to do. So I'll just focus on the work and the person is not the person is part of your work, but you don't focus on them. And so that's one of the things that I think about a lot. Um, I have a good friend who's a marriage counselor. He said, relationships change when you stop fighting against each other about something, but you start fighting together for something else. And that's where I want us to get to, because oftentimes managers like, well, that's broken. Call HR. And you're saying, well, that didn't work out. The managers totally screwed that one up. I set it all up perfectly and they messed it all up. And it feels like there's this back and forth tug of war, you know, us versus them. And I really want to see us on the same team striving to create a workplace where people are excited. There's so much opportunity to do that well. We see in all the data, the number of people who are leaving jobs because they don't feel like anyone cares. They don't feel like anyone is concerned about them. They don't feel support from their manager. Um, in some of the new data we have, we're looking at belonging and how people feel either appreciated or respected at work. If you don't feel those things, they're much more likely to skip town. They're out of here. They're gone. They're much more likely to have mental health issues. They're more, much more likely to think the company overall is hiding things from them. So there's all kinds of indicators we're seeing in the data that, that people, people want to, they want to do their best work. People want to show up to work doing jobs that are meaningful. They want to work for a leader that cares about them. And for this reason or another, we can call them excuses if we want to. That's not happening for a sizable number of people. And that's why we've seen some of the turnover stuff we've seen the last year. That's That scares me a little bit, but it also paints, it says, hey, I only have to be better than, you know, a couple million other people and I'm, I'm good to go. So I'm hopeful that that's the direction we can take this. Well, yeah, I want to get to the state of the economy where you think, you know, not only it's going, uh, but from an HR and leadership perspective, what can be done. Uh, but before we do that, is I want to ask you a little bit more about how HR professionals can make that connection more meaningful with managers and others in the organization. Because I see many HR professionals be overwhelmed, underappreciated, 
And it's hard to develop uh, relationships when you're mm. kind of on the back foot and stressed and, and all that. So what do you think has to happen either behaviorally from the HR perspective or systematically from the organizational perspective to enable healthier relationships between HR professionals and the manager? I have a good friend. He co-hosts a lot of events with me. He's a, an incredible resource. And his his saying that I learned from him during during the dark days of 2020, when we decided to get together anyway in person, it, he told me that love is spelled T-I-M-E, right? If you tell me you love me, you tell me you appreciate me, but I can never get any time with you, you're telling me what's really important to you and I'm not it. And so I think if we want to remind those managers that they're important to us, we have to make sure we're spending some measure of time with them. And just like I talked about earlier, David Marquette's story, it's not about pointing the finger or, you know, you didn't do this or I told you that or this is the deadline. It can't be just about those things. It's got to be about what's working for you right now. What's keeping you up at night? You know, what's what's bothering you? Those kinds of things mm-hmm. that we can understand what makes them tick. Some of the things that are concerning them, we can figure out which of the solutions that are in our arsenal, the solutions in our toolbox, which ones we can turn and adapt to help them. And if you help them solve some of their problems, help them understand how, hey, I know this, it feels like this is the problem, but actually it's probably this other thing based on all the other managers we're seeing across the company. And the ones that do this are, they don't have that issue anymore. Wow. How helpful is that? So let's, let's, let's start marching down that path. Let's, I'm just helping them solve a problem. I think that's a big part of it is being willing to spend the time. I know it's hard to do. And as you said, it's, the, the data on HR burnout is, is pretty ridiculous how often it's happening. But those relationships, building that time in, making sure that's a priority, that leads to more alignment there. When I have to cash in a chip or ask for something hard or push back on something, if I've spent time investing in that relationship, it's much easier to do that. If I haven't done that, this, they can blow me off. They can ignore me. They can, you know, wait till that seventh email comes where their boss is copied, says HR, final warning, like whatever you're going to send that email. They can avoid all those things pretty easily if there's no relationship there. It's much harder for them to do that if you've taken the time to build that relationship on a very intentional level. Right? I, I just, you know, it feels so simple. It's not easy because it takes time. But it's so simple when you get down to it, how much that relationship matters because managers are employees too. And they want to feel like they are respected. They want to feel like they're appreciated. They want to feel like their voice matters at work. And when you give them a chance to, to let that voice be heard, you have a chance to, to empower them. And empowering them isn't just about getting the elevating the performance of one person, but of every person who they have a chance to interact with on their team. Gosh, I, thank you for sharing that. I love that response so much. Uh, it requires time and space to actually, to your point earlier, to have the conversation, to stay in that curiosity, to be creative, and, and in fact, many times co-create. So there's joint authorship of the way forward as opposed to what I see many HR professionals and people analysts for that matter coming up and like they're defending their dissertation and they're like concerned, you know, that the story's not going to be right. It's not going to land right, but just creating space to have the conversation. I mean, that's that's beautiful and I couldn't agree more. So we got about 10 minutes left and I'm going to get to the rapid fire questions at the end. But before, you know, here we are in the summer of, of 2022 
And inflation is a concern. Uh, there's a downturn, but then there's not a downturn. Then there is a downturn. You were, we're oscillating quite a bit economically. So there's this case where some industries are looking to downsize. Others are hiring and they can't hire fast enough. So there's not enough workers. So in terms of the future, uh, not only of your research, but, you know, of HR profession, you know, what would you put forth as some key tenants to hold on to as we navigate not only this period, because this change is, if there is a new normal, it's that we're in perpetual disruption, perpetual you know, change. Yes. I, I would think you would agree. So, you know, what are some of the kind of piece of advice, if you will, as we go into the future that you'd offer up based on your research or your perspective? We could spend an hour probably on that one. Now, if we wanted to. I'll say that I'll give you one quick data point. So we just finished this study of frontline workers. Much of the data that we see, much of the research that we see broadly that's shared about is shared about corporate, right? Office workers, people like us that may not, you know, have to be at a job site physically in person to get this done. And so we did this research there to understand what's happening there because there's been more of a spotlight in the last year or two on that type of worker. What we found is eight out of 10 of them told us that inflation, gas prices, you know, all the kind of stuff that has changed even in the last few months has affected them negatively, has, has hurt them or has caused them issues. We, the job of HR is bigger than ever because suddenly it's not just enough to make sure that we're compliant with the, all the federal and state and local laws and people are paid, you know, some sort of fair wage. But suddenly we got to make sure that is their mental health okay at work? Right? Are we ensuring that not just that we are hiring diverse individuals, but do we have this culture where people feel like they belong and they're really included in what we're doing day to day? Like there's a hundred other things that are layered on top of the work that we have to do. And I'll give you the encouragement to go back to the very earliest points in this conversation. It is really hard to go wrong if you, at the core of the decisions you're making, if the focus is, I care about these people, I want to serve these people, I want to make sure that whatever it takes, I'm doing the best I can to help them have a place where they're excited to come to work. And if that's making sure the benefits are, are excellent or making sure that their managers are capable and equipped to be able to deal with them effectively, whatever it is, that's what I'm going to come back to. And when times are great, wonderful, do it. When times are tough, do it. We're, as I mentioned earlier, we're, I'm writing this new book on uh, working titles, talent scarcity, looking at how some of the demographic changes and things are changing how, much, how many people will be available to work in the future. And if there are fewer people, how we treat each individual one is going to matter even more so than it does now. So that's just some encouragement that we can talk about big picture stuff and we can, you know, grab the magic eight ball and shake it a couple of times and figure out what it says. But if you come back to, I'm going to make a decision based on, I care about you and I'm going to try to do my very best for you as a, as one of the people who works for this company, or even as a leader of this company, right? You're one of our stakeholders in HR and I've got to make sure I'm making sure I'm serving the needs of the business through the decisions we're making. I want to do those same kinds of things. If I filter it through that, it's really hard to go wrong. Yeah. Now, uh, thank you for sharing that as well. And yeah, I am going to sneak in one more question before the rapid fire questions. Um, <laughs> it's, it's tale of what you just shared because 
you know, with COVID, we had these tiger teams, you know, come in that included facilities, HR, of course, you know, IT, legal, um, if there's digital transformations, they could have been, you know, so we, and they were meeting with greater frequency, oftentimes once a week. And so now that we have this return to the workplace, the meeting frequency oftentimes has gotten less and the kind of the collaboration sometimes in some organizations has gotten looser. So my question is, if we're going to create, consciously create employee experiences at scale, what do you feel the governance model needs to be? Uh, and I know it depends. And if we're, I'm listening you know, to this as an HR practitioner or people analytics or workforce planning leader, I'm like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of variables at play. But who do you hope is in the room making these decisions that are going to affect the worker experience or employee experience? I'll tell you that we did a study on how companies select a piece of talent technology. And we found that those were the most satisfied, those who felt like they got the most benefit, those who were um, high performers, like all those kind of good metrics that we'd probably be interested in. Those companies were more likely than those who were low performers, those who were not as happy. The first group was more likely to have this diverse group in the room when they made this decision. They had C-level leadership and they also had employee stakeholders, users, right? Represented when they're making these decisions. I think the same thing applies here. If we are going to make a decision that affects a lot of people, some of those people need to be respect represented in that room. Their converse, their voices need to be represented. They need to be able to speak up and say, that sounds great, but here's what's going to mean for me. Mm. And being able to bring that practical side of things, I had no clue when I started doing research years ago that actually having experience hands-on working on an HR team was going to be a superpower because sometimes the data say this thing and someone who doesn't know better will say, oh, go do this. And like, hold on, just give me a second because in reality, that's never going to happen. And here's the three reasons why. So I think bringing that practical perspective into the room, the people who are boots on the ground going to have to deal with that, going to implement that. That's a big part of success in those long term. I'll give you a one minute story and I'll wrap this up. That part of it. Up. No, I go. have a good friend who used to run an HR team. And one of their biggest problems, one of the silly things that everyone deals with is they couldn't get their managers to complete performance evaluations on time. Okay. Every company probably struggles with that on some level. So finally, she's heard enough of them saying, like, we hate it. It takes too long. The form's too long. Like, it's unnecessary. So she got all the managers in the room. And she locked the door and said, no one is leaving until you decide what you want. I'm not doing it. Here's a blank sheet of paper. Figure it out. And so for the next hour, those managers redesigned that was a single sheet of paper to get all the stuff they needed out of it. She made sure she was good on the compliance side of things, making sure they had those bases covered. But the managers got to define what they wanted, what looked like success. And she said the greatest part about this wasn't that they did the work because they did. Mm -hmm. But the greatest part of it was when they walked out, she's like, Eye contact with you, buddy, over here. Remember, you decided on this. You cannot complain about this ever again, ever. You chose this. And so she got support from them. And the same thing applies back to this conversation you're talking about here. Like we get the people in the room who are making this. It's not just to say, oh, you forgot about this perspective, but we made decisions. You had your group represented there. We have no complaints going forward. We are one team. Let's go unify front, make it happen. Wow. Thank you for sharing. I, I, we need more of that.
we knew more of that because the idea of co-creation as opposed to imposing, I think is really mm-hmm. important and the ability to do it is there, you know? So yeah. again, we can talk about this for another hour, but we're going to have to wrap. I mean, Ben, I love your energy. I love what you're doing. You ready for these rapid fire questions, my friend? Hey, bring it. Your favorite genre of music. Contemporary Christian. All right. There you go. Any artists that you want to call out? Uh, you, you you I got in trouble for I got in trouble in that first HR job for liking uh, Toby Mac because he was a little bit radical. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> books, articles, authors who have inspired you recently. Recently. Oh goodness. Or you can go back yeah. if you want. There are, there's a couple different authors. I'm trying to think. I'm looking at books up here on the shelf here. Um, one of the books I read recently, The Power of Moments. I've read that one every year for the last couple of years since it came out. Because when I read The Power of Moments, I swap out moments for experiences, employee experiences, recruiting mm-hmm. experiences, candidate experiences. And when you read that, it's about how to structure moments that matter to people. So that's one of the books that I'd highly recommend if someone has not read that. Um, oh, the other one I always recommend is called two awesome hours about how to get the most out of your day. It's not just another productivity hacks book. It's a, how do you make sure you're aligning your work with how your body's rhythm works? It's just a fantastic book by a medical practitioner. So I enjoy that, that piece of it. Oh, Hey, you're, you're adding to my reading list for sure. So (laughs) thanks for sharing those. And final question, what do you do for fun? I think I mentioned the running earlier. That's one of my things that I, I still do. I, of all the times in COVID when I could not do anything, uh, we we're kind of stuck here. I had an injury and could not run. So I became an unwilling cyclist for a few months until I recovered enough to start running again and put this, gave the bike back that I'd borrowed and have not looked back. I enjoy it so much. It's my time to think. I turn over hard ideas and it's it helps me keep up with the four kids too. Do you run in the morning, afternoon, evening, or anytime? Late morning is my best time. And yesterday it was 92 degrees outside when I did that here in Alabama. So that was not very pleasant. I'm looking forward to some, you know, 60, 70 degree days pretty soon. I bet. I bet. Well, Ben, hey, thanks for being your awesome self. Thanks for sharing. Super appreciate you. You keep up the great work. Uh, How can people learn more about you and Lighthouse? So you can, there's a couple different places. Uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn. Obviously, you can connect with me there. I love uh, conversations and, and supporting however I can. Lighthouse Research and Advisory is lhra.io. Or you can find me at The Ben Eubanks. It's got links to all the other fun stuff. TheBenEubanks.com. All right, Ben. Well, thank you again. You'd be well. Yeah. Thank you, Al. Appreciate yeah. you. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about today's guest, go to pafal.net. You'll be able to see links to the bio as well as to the video of today's program. You'll also have the chance to support this podcast and other shows that we do by becoming a Pafal community member. You can also donate if you choose. What will be helpful to support Pafal, the People Data for Good Movement, and me will be to share this episode with friends and co-workers and others who might find it valuable. Uh, finally, for updates on upcoming episodes, shows, and events, please subscribe to our newsletter at pafal.net. At the bottom, you can also see our social media presence. So please subscribe to our company page on LinkedIn, follow us on YouTube, 
Twitter and Instagram. We're active as can be and we want to provide this content to you that is timely, relevant, and actionable. So again, thank you for listening today and hope to see you soon. I also want to give a shout out to Jenna Dern, Malaz El-Sheikh, and Sarah Sparnan, who without them, this show would not happen. And now go out and make some great things happen.